Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be guys we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, Our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. And do we have some stories for you today? If you remember back a couple of episodes, we had a conversation with Gary R. Kramer and Antonio F. Holland about the book they co-published with Lorenzo Green, Missouri's Black Heritage. Well, when we talked that day, we had so many stories about their time at Lincoln University and their time with Lorenzo Green that we couldn't fit it into one episode. So today's episode serves as a part two, in a ways, of that earlier conversation. So let's listen in as Gary R. Kramer and Antonio F. Holland talk about Lincoln University, their time there, and their memories of Lorenzo Green. I kind of looked at Lorenzo Green with kind of rose, uh, rose-tinted glasses, you know. He, uh, I was in co- high college during the uh, Civil Rights Movement, and People like Lorenzo Green and some of his contemporaries, uh, uh, like John Hope Franklin and the like, were basically, you know, thought of as the people who provided the the intellectual uh, kind of background for or justification for the civil rights movement. And I, you know, and some of my cousins, especially, I think we consider ourselves the foot soldiers in the civil rights, black power movement. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I kind of uh, uh, kind of admired him and his scholarship as such. So I kind of developed a pretty close relationship with them when I came to uh, Lincoln, Jeff City as such, with not only uh, Green, but his family. You know, I, I think it was a, you know, close relationship before we worked on Missouri Black Heritage, I think we worked on a couple of grants. I think Gary, you were involved with one of those grants. I know, especially, uh, what, was it from the Phelps Stokes Fund? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't remember the exact title of it, but yeah. it, was, uh, it was right after Dr. Green retired. Yeah. And he wrote, a, he wrote a Phelps Stokes grant to uh, try to increase the likelihood of black urban students staying in school. So mm-hmm. Swing referred to it as the dropout institute. Yeah. I, I would go back. Uh, that, yeah. that came in, I think, 1972. My, my own interaction with Dr. Green uh, really began with a, an introductory course on the history of Western civilization. I was a, uh, I went to Lincoln University in the fall of 1966 intending to major in sociology. Uh, I had no interest in history, quite frankly. And uh, everybody at Lincoln at the time had to take six hours or yeah, six hours of, of non-US history and six hours of history. 
so I, I took this course, the history of Western civilization, part one, and uh, the instructor was this, uh, at that time, I thought quite elderly uh, gentleman. I knew nothing about it, absolutely nothing. I, I didn't know, this was about 1967 or 68. Uh, I didn't know that he was one of the premier scholars of African-American history in the country. I didn't know anything about Carter Woodson or the Association for the Study of Then Negro Life and History. I just knew that Lorenzo Green was a hell of a teacher. He, he was fascinating. I thought this guy must be an expert in ancient Greece and Rome. And I'm not sure this was a class that was supposed to go up, as I recall, to the 30 years war in the early 17th century. I'm not sure we ever got into the post-Christian <laughs> era. <laughs> We spent an enormous amount of time on the Greeks and the Romans, and we spent a significant amount of time in in, uh, in early Africa. And I was just I was just blown away by his knowledge. I don't recall him ever looking at a note. He just spoke extemporaneously. Um, and and I should tell you, in all brutal honesty, I had already failed this course. It's the only course I ever failed in my life. <laughs> I. I and, and the irony here is that years later, I would end up teaching that course. But I failed that course, and I won't mention names, but I failed that course because it was taught by, well, I took it when I was a freshman in 1966, and I was less than enthused about taking it. I never liked history. And I had an instructor who read to us from the textbook. And at that time, Lincoln was a very rigid school. Uh, if you missed, uh, more than three classes, each class of unexcused absences, um, the professor was allowed to drop your grade, a letter grade for each unexcused absence. So four absences and you were out of the class. Mm -hmm. And I exercised my option to skip class. <laughs> and the professor exercised his option and failed me. So when I took the class, probably a couple of years later, uh, I think it might have been the, uh, it might have been even as late as the fall of 1968, could have been 67, don't remember. I took it with less than uh, enthusiasm, but I was so, uh, so stunned by Lorenzo Green's brilliance and his articulateness and his command of, of the subject uh, that, I, that I took a second semester. And, uh, and that was the beginning of our relationship, although I was still a sociology major. And I, I changed my major to history when I was about a junior. And the consequence of that was it took me an extra semester to, to complete all the requirements. So in, in December of 1970, I graduated with the distinction of having an undergraduate degree in history and absolutely no job prospects. Um, I mean, who's going to hire a liberal arts major? I tried a variety of things, including working as a carpenter for my father-in-law. And my father-in-law would always remind me that I probably had a better future as a teacher than a carpenter. <laughs> um, and so I decided to, to go back to graduate school. And uh, as a way of earning money, I uh, Lincoln really didn't have at the time what we would think of today as graduate fellowships. The option was to work as a work study student. 
And so uh, essentially I became a work study student for Lorenzo Green as his research assistant in 1970 and 71. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, he became almost a surrogate father for me and uh, took me under his wing and uh, uh, was very patient with me because I, you know, I, I had, I was the first person in my family to go to college. My parents didn't even go to high school. There was no high school to go to. Uh, but it was, uh, I, I was always uh, profoundly impressed with Dr. Green's uh, knowledge, his fluency in multiple languages. As Tony remembers, uh, Dr. Green's friends all called him Rennie. Uh, yeah. I, you would never catch me calling Dr. Green by his first name. Uh, <laughs> Tony and I got to the point where we, we called him simply Doc. Yeah. He, he, was, he was Doc. But uh, even to this day, I, I cannot refer to Dr. Green by his first name, and much less by his nickname, Rennie, Rennie, that his close friends called him. Yeah, I took some, uh, when I got to Lincoln, I sat in his classes and I know what, I, I was sitting in his African-American history classes, but it was, a, in a sense, it was a similar experience to Gary. I mean, he would be covering, supposedly covering from the African background to the Civil War. And he would send, spend so much time on the African background that <laughs> you, it, it, he, was, he was lucky to get to the slave trade <laughs> yeah. as such, you know? I mean, and, and then when he would uh, teach the second half, he would just pick up where he left off and, and proceed, but... That, that was interesting. At that time, there was very little interference at Lincoln in the classroom. And so even though it was very rigid, but there was little, uh, like I say, interference with what a how a teacher taught as such. And so like I say, uh, and Dr. Green would go in, in huge depth. And, and, and I know when he was teaching the African, he might occasionally pick up a note card, but only occasionally. And uh, like I say, it was a, a, tr a tremendous experience and such. That, that class Tony is talking about was a, a two semester class, 400 level class called the Negro in America to the Civil War and the Negro in America since the Civil War. I took both those classes and we never got to the Civil War. Uh, <laughs> I think in the first classes, Tony said, I don't think we ever got out of Africa. Uh, but but it was it was a wonderful experience. And then um, Tony, you remember that that there was also a one semester course that you and I ended up both teaching uh, the, an introduction. What was it called? Introdu it was a two hundred three or two hundred four class introduction to yeah. oh, American yeah. history, something history. like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, one thing we've uh, we've failed to mention, and and I know this isn't just about. Uh, Dr. Green, but but it really is in many ways. Um, as Tony and I would not have been involved in publishing Missouri's Black Heritage if it hadn't been for Dr. Green. But but part of of the I, I, I the the almost intangible that Lorenzo Green gave us both was uh, was the stories of his involvement with the early 
Association for the Study of Negro Life and History and Woodson and Charles Wesley and Dorothy Porter and, and John Hope Franklin and Charles Wesley and uh, Benjamin Quarles and all these, these giant figures who by this time in the late 60s and early 70s were very much in their declining years. Wesley was Wesley had been one of Dr. Green's professors yeah. at Howard. So these guys were, uh, were, were quite elderly, but part of working for Dr. Green was listening to his stories about the early years of the association and about his struggles and uh, his, his uh, somewhat tempestuous relationship with Woodson. And, uh, you know, Tony and I traveled with Dr. Green. Tony, you remember that uh, maybe the most fateful trip we ever took was when we went with him. You and I traveled together to an association meeting in DC. On the train. On the train. <laughs> and Dr. Green flew out. Yeah. And, uh, we were all going to we were all going to share a room in a, in a hotel in in uh, Washington D.C. and uh, traveling with Dr. Green was always uh, an adventure. And in this particular case, he he, he got to D.C. and he checked into the wrong hotel. And uh, and then he finally, you know, he's wondering where we are, and somehow we connected. I don't remember how this happened because nobody had cell phones, but he left his bags behind. He left his he he got eventually to the hotel where we were staying, and, but he, his bags were at another hotel, and he sent me out to retrieve his bags. It was just <laughs> pouring down rain. I mean, just sheets of rain, and I hailed a cab and I got to this hotel and. And somehow I had to try to talk the bellhop into letting me take these black bags that didn't belong to me. And uh, it was, I mean, it took me hours to, to do this. But then we go to dinner and, uh, you know, who, who walks by to join us? But Charles Wesley. And then another person walks by and it's John Hope Franklin. And I'm thinking these are only figures I have a vague awareness of because I've read their works and I've heard stories. But it was almost a surreal experience for me, at least, to be able to sit down at a meal with these giants of the Black history movement and to listen to them. You know, I just sat there awestruck and listened to their stories and they're kidding each other. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. I remember one time when Dr. Green, this was about the time of the bicentennial, and Dr. Green had had um, another uh, kind of spell with his heart, and he couldn't go, but he had committed to go. I was supposed to go and read his paper, so I went to uh, read his paper, and he was on a committee at the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life in History. And I go to the, I go to the room that's designated and I see John Hope Franklin, Benjamin Quarles, all these giants <laughs> sitting in a semicircle <laughs> with these. <laughs> um, so I, I come in and I, I, I say that Dr. Green told me to come. And uh, Quarles was a kind of a, 
a, a, a very affable person. And he, he immediately just said, sit down. You know, Lorenzo sent you, just sit down. Usually I'm not that smart, but I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I just sat and listened. Dr. Reed was never in a hurry. I, I remember one time, Tony, we were flying somewhere. I don't remember where it was. And we were, we were just polite. And I think, as I remember, Dr. Green sent you running ahead to stop the plane. Stop the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and we got on the plane eventually, but I don't remember where we were going or what the specifics were, but uh, there was no hurrying him. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, there wasn't any. <laughs> no, he would, um, I don't know, a lot of times he would be, uh, I guess they what they used to call fashionably late. <laughs> but of course, when you're going for an airplane, that's not always the best thing. <laughs> but, yeah, Dr. Green was a perfectionist. I mean, he was a good scholar, but he also was a perfectionist. And so... Uh, he, you know, like I say, he would continually want to work on a manuscript or a paper or things like that, or stuff like that. And uh, I remember when I was doing my doctorate at the University of Missouri, and they uh, put me in one of the retired teachers' offices for writing my comps. And he had a, a, a saying that was framed in a picture frame on his wall, and it said, Know when to put the pen down. <laughs> and I, and I, I always remember that. But like I say, Dr. Green was really a perfectionist, and he he would go back and uh, you know add things or change words and things like that. And so, yeah, I, th I think that's probably one of the reasons why he didn't publish more. Uh, you know, the, the things that he did publish, I mean, the Negro and Colonial New England, his magnum opus is, uh, is a classic. Yeah. Um, but I think he was always, uh, he always wanted to revise just a little bit more. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have sense enough to be a perfectionist, yeah. but, uh, but he, he really was, and I think Tony's absolutely right that, uh, yeah. You know, he yeah, just, he was reluctant always to turn a final manuscript loose. You know, there yeah, always was I mean, something that could be done to improve it. Yeah, and his uh, magnum opus, the uh, Negro and Colonial New England, proves it though, because for his dissertation, as I understand it, you know, his his committee basically said, "We're going to take the middle part and accept that as your dissertation." I mean, and, 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 and so there was uh, 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 preliminary material and material that uh, came after that. I think that he carried up to 1800. And, uh, and they just said, we're gonna just take this and accept that as your dissertation. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that was, a, like I say, a part of his perfectionism, you know. It's yeah. like, I know, I, I, I wondered about, you know, like you say, Gary says that, I, I think that that held him back from publishing as much as he could have. Um, but one of uh, one of the, uh, our friends that uh, also was, uh, you know, associated 
with uh, Dr. Green. I, I think one time he, uh, Ed Beasley told and said, said that uh, he just felt like he would never have been the scholar he was if he hadn't been that kind of perfectionist. Although like, like Gary says, it probably kept him from um, being, uh, you know, publishing more. He also was a social activist. He was really involved in, this, in, in civil rights in Missouri. So, I mean, all the way going back to the sharecropper strike in uh, 1939. So he was very much engaged in, uh, and I say in civil rights type activities. And I, I'm sure that that uh, detracted from his publication too, because he was pretty much a perfectionist in anything he did. I mean, or, 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 he, or he went full bore. I know on this sharecropper strike, he uh, got the students involved at Lincoln. He wrote the newspaper, wrote newspaper articles and stuff like that in order to get support for the sharecroppers as such. So uh, he was, like I say, very much involved in those kind of activities as such. So uh, that I'm sure deterred uh, the, uh, what was the um, Missouri, it's not called that anymore, but it was the Missouri Association of Social Welfare. Yeah, that he was really involved in. Yeah, which and, and ultimately uh, that organization laid the groundwork for the creation of the Missouri Human Rights Commission. Mission. Involved in both those things. He's also very much involved in the uh, racial integration of the Jeff City Public Schools in the mid 1950s. Yeah, and then he was also in the 60s was named a member of the United States Civil Rights Commission in the mid to late 1960s. So yeah, yeah. he was so, very much involved in uh, all sorts of civil rights activities. I think he, I think he was, he was actually on three civil rights, I mean, uh, three presidential commissions. Yeah. Which is very unusual. But all of them had to do something with, uh, uh, civil rights. I think the first one might have had to do with housing or something like that. With yeah, I the, think that's right. With the Urban League. And he, I think he wrote a, a, a help write a piece on black housing in the probably in the Washington, D.C. area. He was that's yeah, that was when he was still working for Woodson. Woodson, yeah. And then um, I know the last one was probably that uh, the securities rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah which was really all aimed at civil rights. I think everybody who ever met Lorenzo Green has a, at least one Lorenzo Green story. Uh, he was a, a remarkable individual. And, and it was a remarkable time at Lincoln University. Lorenzo Green was one of the more remarkable, but there were others. You know, Tony and I had a lot of conversations with Professor Cecil Blue. Blue, yeah. Who was Har Harvard trained and was a Harlem Renaissance scholar. I, I suppose you could argue that one of the last scholars of that era was probably Dr. Thomas B. Pauley, uh, who died just a few years ago uh, at nearly the age of 100, just a year or so short of that. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever see anything like Tony and I. Tony and I were beneficiaries of the tail end of that experience. I was lucky enough to be a student in the classes of many of these people who were at the tail end of their career. Mm -hmm. um, and once they were gone, they were gone. 
you know, that was remarkable. Lincoln had an antiquated retirement system that said you had to be 70 to fully retire. And so actually when I got there in the 1970, of course, Gary came earlier as a student. Uh, these persons were still in the classroom. Dr. Green for a couple of years, uh, Cecil Blue in English. In fact, I used to live on, um, he lived on Lafayette Street. And I first came to Lincoln, I lived on Lafayette Street. And apparently we had a class almost at the same time. So we would walk up to the campus <laughs> you know, practically every day uh, as such for a, a couple semesters. So, and um, what, that was remarkable. Uh, o. Anderson Fuller in music was the first black to receive a PhD in music. He was there. Dr. Um, Pride was still there. Dr. Pride, Pride, yeah. In fact, one of the reasons Lincoln had such a um, wealth of black newspapers was that pride as part of um, the suits uh, for towards desegregation, pride was an uh, English teacher who went back to school to become a journalism professor to take over journalism at Lincoln. And he went up to Northwestern and he was given the task of assembling all the existing black newspapers. That was a part of his PhD dissertation. All over the country. All over the country collected them. And of course, that meant that a lot of them ended up at Lincoln. Uh, James D. Parks was still there in the art department. Art department, yeah. Uh, yeah. Dr. Dowdy in biology was at the tail end of his career. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Polly, who we mentioned, uh, these were giants. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, we had the good, good benefit of. Uh, yeah. At least I had the benefit of having classes with most of these guys. Yeah, and Dr. Even though most of them came in the 30s, Dr. Pauly didn't come to 1940, so he actually was in the classroom up until about the 19, 1980s. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that was very, uh, it's very fortunate to be in contact with that group of scholars. I, I felt very, I, I felt very blessed in that in that regard. Oliver Cromwell Cox was still there. I had a sociology class with him. He may have been part of the reason I left sociology. <laughs> he was a pretty harsh taskmaster, but he was a brilliant man. Yeah. Uh, lived in the dormitory until the day he left Lincoln in 1970. And, and then, as Tony said, there was, there was a mandatory retirement. So not only did you have to work till 70, but you couldn't work after 70. Yeah. And Cox wanted to work after 70, and the Lincoln University wouldn't allow him. And so he left uh, Jefferson City and Lincoln and went to uh, Wayne State University in Detroit, where he finished out his teaching career as a septuagenarian. Yeah, even, even with Dr. Green, he, he actually succeeded his retirement, but only because um, the federal government began giving out uh, grants and one of them at that time, just that he was ready to retire, they came out with something they called an emeritus professor grant, where they would uh, allow a school to continue a professor for a couple, you know, for a couple years and such. And we we had Green and I think they, I remember they brought in a, another emeritus professor. Uh, you remember Parrish? 
uh, sociology. Yeah. yeah. Sociology, wasn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about him. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um just a little bit of uh of luck, <laughs> more or less, in terms of timing. In terms of time. And I remember Gary said to me one time, you won't remember this, Gary. Um, that we had associated with Lorenzo Green at the right time, that he probably had more time to be, you know, in other words, to, um, to be more open to us, you know, at an earlier time, he probably would have been more, so much more devoted to his uh, research and his civic activities that he would not have had the time, you know, that we had with him. I think so. I think he quite literally also, Tony, I, I think he he saw us as a way to continue the work um, through him because he, you know, I think I think this is what he saw with himself in his relationship with Woodson, that he was going to carry on the Woodson tradition. And I think he saw us as carrying on that tradition. Mm -hmm. And in a very real sense, I always felt like uh, Dr. Green was saying to me, you have a, a responsibility and a duty to do this work after I pass. What I always found interesting though, he thought he could learn something from anybody. Yeah. You know, I, was, I remember we would go to somebody be speaking on campus. And maybe it was one of these young um, black militant figures or something like that. And Dr. Green would say, "Oh, let's let's go listen to this guy," you know. And uh, and I and I would be saying to myself, you know, I wouldn't say it, to Dr. Green, but I say, you know, Dr. Green, you probably have forgotten more than this guy <laughs> knows <laughs> and everything. But he would dutifully go there, pull out an envelope out of his pocket, and take notes on the back of an envelope from uh, no matter who the speaker was as such. Uh, so he always felt like he could learn from uh, almost anyone. He liked to talk to like African students and like, you know, to uh, people that were from, uh, or East A or Asian, you know, people from different cultures too. He, he, he was uh, constantly uh, of the mind that he could learn from anybody and he wanted to. So he was uh, very, uh, very unique in that one. In terms of uh, African-American comparison, I actually think he, he was somewhat similar to uh, the African-American intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois. And I mean, and he associated with all these people. And, uh, uh, du Bois at one time was asked to give a series of lectures on the African-American at Columbia University. And uh, he, he got Green to have lunch with him at the YMCA in New York City and, and asked him if he would cover the, the Free Negro in that lecture series that he had, you know, because uh, how he planned on handling was asking a series of people that he considered experts in different fields or, or knowledgeable um, to, uh, Carry on that lecture series and stuff, uh, but like I say, I, the, I I think that was one of the things I I uh, found interesting about him that uh, he um, 
always thought he could learn more. I think that's a great way to end it. So I, th I thank you all for joining me. Okay. Thanks for bringing us together, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.